Welcome to the Jersey Heritage Podcast, where we give you access to fascinating historic sites and collections that are not generally open to the public. Today we're exploring the fascinating lives of surrealist artists Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, otherwise known as Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Meller, who moved from Paris to Jersey in the 1930s. Claude Cahoon's groundbreaking photographs have attracted international interest, and the Jersey Heritage collection of her work has been loaned to museums and galleries around the world. We're also going to find out about the incredibly brave and daring resistance activities of these two women during the occupation years. So we're here in St Brillard's Bay and we're going to go and explore St Brillard's Church and some of the other significant buildings in the bay that were important to Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore in the years that they lived in Jersey. So we're just opening the gate into the churchyard. So we're standing here in St Brillard's graveyard um, by the ancient wall overlooking the bay, I think you just hear the sound of waves breaking in the background. It's a really beautiful, calm day. And from here, it's a great vantage point because we can see uh, St Brillard's Bay Hotel. And this is where Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore spent a lot of um, family holidays when they were growing up. So when Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore decided to move to Jersey around 1937, they actually purchased La Roquez, which is a seafront property right next to St Brillard's Bay Hotel. It's interesting, you can still see a notch cut into the wall, which after the occupation, they, one of the first things they did was to remove a section of the wall to reclaim the sea view that they had lost when the wall was built up by the Germans as part of their defensive fortifications of the island. So we're going to talk now about the lives of Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore and their time in Jersey. And I'm here with Claire Follin, who first got involved with the collection many years ago as an undergraduate student. So when I arrived, I, I knew nothing at all about them. I knew that they were both artists. Um, I was presented with these tea trunks, which I can still remember, um, put in a room with them for the whole of the summer holidays, I think it was, and they were just a mess. They, they, they were literally just bits of paper that had been swept off, off the floor in some cases, and there was no organisation to them at all, so chronologically impossible. It was just like the, most, the largest jigsaw puzzle that you can imagine. <laughs> Um, but with no picture and no sense of what on earth I was uncovering and, and my brief really was please translate some of these or give us a sense of what they say and so it was genuinely like the sense of having discovered some treasure, a real treasure hoard because as I started to read the variety of documents there some of them really mundane and they seemed very commonplace like address books, but opening up and looking under D and seeing Dustman and their address and telephone number and then Dali, Salvador and, and his, you get the idea yes. that this is not, not an ordinary address not book. Not a normal tea chest or indeed um, address book. And then I started to translate some of the letters and very odd bits of paper, even the, 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 the things inside the tea chest were unusual. Um, and as a historian, I'd worked with people's archives before and individuals' archives. This was like nothing else I'd ever seen. And as the days wore on, 
and the weeks and the months wore on and I started going through these items, you, I really got the sense of who they were and uncovered the story of what had happened during the occupation because a large amount of it was related to their work during the occupation. So could you outline for us a bit about mm. that occupation story? Yes, yeah, so um, Lucy and Suzanne had a history of coming to Jersey on, on family holidays and staying at St Brillard's Bay Hotel, which was a, then and is still now a thriving tourist um, hotel. And they used to come from the 1930s um, all the way through until they decided to leave Paris in the late 1930s. And they bought a house, a beautiful property called La Roquez, um, right on the beachfront opposite um, the St. Bernard Bay Hotel uh, in 1937. And then they moved to the island permanently in 1938 and made their home here together and um, lived a very happy life, I think. They kept in contact with their Parisian surrealist artist friends, um, particularly André Breton and his wife and their daughter, who, who used to visit in the late 1930s. Yes, there are some pictures of the Breton family mm. in the garden at La Roque's, aren't there? Yes, with little Orb, who mm. was the daughter. And they clearly had still very close relationships, but um, you get the sense from their letters in that period that they had left Paris because they felt that the Surrealist movement there was perhaps a little bit too male-oriented and, and the, the men who were running the, and organising the Surrealist movement were quite exclusive, really, and um, did not include or take seriously um, the female members of that, of that group. So, and um, I think Lucy had got to the point where she wanted a sense of doing art for its own sake and didn't necessarily want to be part of any wider group necessarily. So they moved to Jersey and had this idyllic, definitely their first year was highly idyllic. Mm. Yes, lots of photographs of them. Um, I think they really enjoyed swimming, didn't they? And exploring the beaches. And so you get that sense that they were living quite an idyllic existence until, of course, there was war on the horizon. Yeah, their lives here. I think were really interesting just before the war you get that sense of them being able to have real freedom and they lived uh, under this umbrella of being sisters they were stepsisters obviously um, they it was not widely known and I think it would have not just entered people's minds that they were a couple um, they were very they were very eccentric they were known in the area for sunbathing naked which I think was something at that time which is not necessarily the done thing and they loved their cats they were quite obsessed with their cats and they used to walk their cats on leads um, on the beach and around the lanes and uh, they were often seen in different costumes and outfits and so they were sort of the, this fabulous eccentric lifestyle but as war loomed and you know the phony war of 1939 they they were very politically astute they realized that there were dark times coming and even in those early early war pre-war years really during that the, the phony war period they had a sense that war was going to come to them one way or another and they had time during that that period 1939 to 40 to really think about how they were going to react to nazism and to the war in general and um, they talk a lot in in lucy writes in letters and in uh, diary entries about her attitude to nazism and the war and they did it consciously so and, and I think this is quite an interesting that was an interesting read when I discovered it they talk she talks Lucy talks very explicitly about that decision not to evacuate because people in Jersey had that choice you know there, there were a period not not long but a period of weeks when they realized that they, Jersey is very likely to be occupied 
they absolutely consciously chose to stay. They talked about the possibility of going back to France before France was occupied or going to England. They always talked in those terms of whether they were going to stay in Jersey or go to anywhere else or even go to America in the sense of where's the best place for us to undertake resistance. So it was very planned right from the very beginning and they chose Jersey because they realised they would have quite a unique advantage to be in a small community and be able to undertake resistance. So when the Germans occupied in July 1940 they already had this plan of resistance and they'd already decided that what they were going to do is they were going to be uh, essentially a fifth columnist but with and um, to pretend to be disgruntled uh, German soldiers their view was that not all Germans were Nazis um, and that Nazism was sort of an evil force that many of the uh, soldiers stationed on the island didn't agree with but had to go along with. And so the plan was to pretend to be this group of disgruntled German soldiers and to produce what they called their newspaper. Um, and they, they produced on a daily basis different sheets of paper, handwritten and then produced on, on, a, on a sort of a typewriter with um, illustrations and usually news that they got from their, their illegal radio um, and they would distribute this news around the island and they went to extreme lengths to disguise the fact that they were just acting on their own, the fact that they were not German soldiers um, and, uh, and they were prolific. The distribution of the papers were the genius in my view. They were so reckless and so, so incredibly brave with what they did. And um, they, she, Lucy writes about how reckless they were and says, you know, one of the reasons why we weren't caught for four years is because we were so reckless. Who would have thought that two women of our age, they, they, they sort of went out in disguises. Um, they were quite clever in that they realised that German soldiers would be very attracted to empty cigarette packets that looked full because cigarettes were you know, quite difficult to obtain. So they would get empty cigarette packets and put them in there. They'd throw them into staff cars. They would walk through a cafe where German soldiers were and subtly leave them on the table right under the noses of, of German soldiers. It was incredible. Mm. So this was very risky behaviour, particularly in the light of the fact that Lucy was half Jewish as well. Mm. So were they eventually caught and what happened to them? They were, they were eventually caught. And I think it's worth saying that, you know, on such a small island where Jersey had the highest concentration of German soldiers per capita of civilian population, you know, just to think about that for a moment, such a tiny, tiny island, so many German soldiers um, in comparison to civilians, they got away with it for four years and a month. They'd always anticipated they would get caught. They were certainly not deluded in that, in that sense at all. The interrogations went on for days and weeks. The German, well, the Nazi um, Geheimfeldpolizei did not understand and could not accept that it was just these two women who at the time were 51 and 53. Lucy had quite poor health, so she looked quite frail. And they kept saying, you know, which man is behind this? Tell us the cell. Give us the name of the cell. Give us all the names of the men who are organising this. And they basically confessed everything and said, no, it's just us. No one else is involved. This is where we got the paper. This is how we did it. This is how long we've been planning it. 
um, here's, you know, you've got our typewriter, this is, and, and they just, they told them everything, mm. and essentially their Nazi interrogators didn't believe them. So could you outline for us what actually happened during the trial and what their sentence mm. was? The trial, again, Lucy writes about it, it's quite amusing to read, but her humour clearly covers, as ever, a very difficult period and it's interesting she expresses it with such humour but she talks about the joy of being reunited with Suzanne in the courtroom she talks about that they've gone from this cold damp cell in November to a heated courtroom with comfortable seats and the joy of a hot cup of tea and you know things like that but the joy of being back with Suzanne and being able to sit next to her was um, obviously very deeply felt the trial lasted can you imagine five hours <laughs> Now, in the past, I used to work as a criminal lawyer, so that, that always makes me laugh. Um, Five-hour trial. She comments that the, um, she, they were given a, a, a Nazi defence lawyer who Suzanne at one point comments is more against them than the prosecution. So clearly there was, there was no sort of sense of um, proper legal representation. They listened to what they call the worst aspects of what they did, and they were really... Um, very vindicated. They found the trial to be actually quite enjoyable to listen to how annoyed they had made the Nazi authorities was to them an enormous vindication of all those years work and you can imagine having come from that really difficult period of time of being separated and going through interrogation and two suicide attempts each to sit there and hear the trial and think gosh we really made a difference yes, you do get really worth it. it yeah yes. I get that sense mm. you do get that sense so at the end of five hours there's very you know ordinarily a judge would sum up which I'm sure he did in his own way and then um, he uh, almost immediately went to sentencing so you can imagine there was not a great deal of consideration was <laughs> definitely a kangaroo court so the the judge sentenced them to six months for possession of an illegal radio set and also possession of an illegal firearm, um, which they'd kept throughout the occupation, and then six years for listening to the BBC, because radios were outlawed in um, 1942, but they'd obviously used um, all the information that they'd heard via the BBC to create this newspaper. And then um, they were sentenced to death for um, propaganda undermining the morale of the German forces. And it's very interesting that Lucy notes down some of the words that the judge used because, again, she saw this as the ultimate vindication, but he called them franc-tireurs, um, which is a, a French phrase that's basically is sort of a, a, a spiritual um, terrorist, essentially. And he said, um, with firearms, one knows at once what damage has been done, but with spiritual arms, one cannot tell how far-reaching it may be. And they clearly were very, very concerned at the effect that this newspaper had had on their, um, on, on their military presence in the island and on the soldiers that they had, particularly as by November 1944, France had been liberated. And so these women presented really quite a difficult problem. And as soon as they heard this sentence, um, <laughs> the women' uh, response was, well, which one are we going to serve first, the six months? Are we doing that, the six years? And they were told with no humour, no, you will be shot. <laughs> so the death sentence will be served. Um, they obviously were absolutely terrified by that, but they also note, Lucy notes, that it, it showed that their um, resistance activities had been successful, they'd been taken seriously, they'd had an effect. And so the, how they react to the death sentence is to fully accept it. 
and to anticipate it. Um, to the extent that um, it was anticipated that they would appeal against this sentence, even, even at that time the Germans allowed you to appeal, and, or the Nazis, sorry, allowed you to appeal, um, but they did not, they didn't want to appeal, and uh, they were urged to do so by the Nazi authorities, but refused to sign the papers. And that was when the bailiff at the time, um, Alexander Coutanche, who was the civic head of the island, um, intervened along with the uh, French consul on the island. And they got together and decided, well, you know, we can't allow these two, you know, middle-aged women to be taken out and shot, which was what was going to happen to them. And so they decided, Nazi authorities decided to allow an appeal, even though the women hadn't requested it, which was obviously against procedure. And um, having resisted this appeal, it was in um, February 1945 that the death sentence was removed and it was um, made to be a life sentence. So what happened after the islands were liberated? So they were, they were in prison for the whole of that time then? They were, and it's clear that in the couple of days surrounding and preceding the liberation, that it was chaos in terms of how the Nazi um, uh, uh, authorities were governing the island. Everybody knew what was coming. There was that sense within the civilian population of what was coming. And the Nazi authorities, I think, were just scrabbling around. We know, don't we, that a lot of their documents were burnt. Um, so they, they, you can imagine the chaos. And so there were no orders coming into the prison. So no one in the prison, in the authorities at the prison, knew what to do with these prisoners. And eventually the governor um, decided to release um, some of the political prisoners. But Lucy and Suzanne were the very, very last ones to be released um, on the evening on the 8th of May, so the night before the, um, the British came to liberate the island. And you will know, Lucy, that photograph of um, Lucy Schwab on the, on, at the threshold of her house with her headscarf on and the Nazi insignia badge in her mouth. And that is one of my favourite photographs. That was taken as they arrived home on that day and it was a, a, a badge that had been ripped off the um, jacket of a German soldier who'd been imprisoned for insurgency and who had made friends with them and in fact had then hidden out in their home during the period of their arrest and who had said that they were responsible for him trying to um, start a revolt in the island and he'd ripped it off his jacket and given it to Lucy and said you know you can have this dirty bird because I don't want it and that's the significance of that photo. Oh, yes I'm familiar with the photograph I hadn't realised that was mm. taken as they returned home mm. from their time in prison. An amazing photograph. It's she looks so defiant. Yes it is and the significance of that badge and again you know that photograph is in this tea chest and it was only when I read the letter where she describes where it came from, that all the different photographs that they took that were in front of me began to come to life. And I think, um, you know, I, I've um, written quite a lot about the fact that I came at this subject of the lives of Lucy and Suzanne completely as a social historian. When I first saw their art, it did not set me on fire at all. I didn't understand it. I mean, I was fairly young. But, you know, I was in my early 20s and didn't have much um, experience, really, of looking at such incredible art. I didn't understand it until I read their archive and understood the significance and the imagery and the thought that went into all of those photographs. And, um, and then they became incredibly 
They came alive. There's a story behind every picture, some of which look quite anodyne and ordinary, but when you understand why they produced it, like that dirty bird photograph is incredibly powerful. I've got that one up in my house. Yeah, well, what an amazing sort of privilege almost to be the first person to look through all that mm. archival material and piece this story together and really get to know them so intimately. It really was a privilege and they had a really profound influence on the course of my life generally. I think they are incredibly inspirational women. I think their relationship with one another was mind-blowingly special. I think that the way that they lived their surrealist um, values in life, they genuinely lived as real surrealists and they had political convictions for which we all would like to aspire, but how many of us could actually do what they did? They were the bravest of women, and I think we are really privileged on Jersey that they chose to have those lives and do what they did here. We've come to find the gravestone in St Brillard's churchyard, where Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Mallard are buried together in a single plot. It feels quite fitting that they should have found their final resting place here in St Brillard's Bay where they spent so many years of their lives. Initially happy years together and then of course very difficult years under occupation. But it was a very important place for them and um, it's, it's very fitting that they should be buried here together in St Brillard's. We hope you've enjoyed this Jersey Heritage podcast. Further podcasts can be downloaded from the Jersey Heritage website or your usual podcast provider.